0: Good morning, morning. morning. It's gonna be a long few minutes. Can <laughs> already? I'm kidding. Uh, today we are continuing on in our sermon series and uh, through 1 Corinthians entitled "Grace Changes Everything." Uh, this is something we've been working through for several months now, and uh, the last couple of weeks, Mark has preached uh, a couple of very hard passages. I always joke that he gives, he saves the really hard ones for me, but man, he really uh, took uh, took the passages and just boldly shared what God says to us, and, uh, and I've appreciated hearing that and appreciated all that the Lord has taught us through that. But today, on the surface, it looks like we're, we're taking a departure from... Uh, The topics of sexual immorality within the church Uh, But don't worry, we're still going to come back to that again next week Because Paul dips back into that in in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians And uh, the thing we're going to see today is that all of this stuff is connected All of our life, all of the sin that we walk through, we struggle with All those hurdles is connected All that we're working through right now in God's Word is pointed It's difficult stuff but it's worthwhile for us to look at. It's it's important for us, not just to skip over. It's the reason we preach through books of the Bible uh, because it's like you said last week, I don't know any church uh, on the face of the earth that would just choose, hmm, I think this would be great for us just to walk through this passage today. It'd be easy just to skip over this stuff, but man, this is worthwhile stuff for us to talk through today. It's helpful for us as we continue to grow and develop as a church replant. Uh, If you have your copy of the Bible, If you would scroll with me or turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. And if you want a hard copy, there are some available. I'm going to be preaching and reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, The words will also be on the screen if you want to look along. Um, We're going to read 1 through 8, starting in verse 1 this morning uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges uh, those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Amen. Uh, we've already seen in chapter 5 that Paul's message and his wording has become very pointed. Uh, started off 1 Corinthians by expressing his love so that they know that all this is going to come from a place of love, and even this is from a place of love. But he scolded this church harshly already for the blatant and unapologetic sexualist sin that is present within the body of Christ here. He scolded them harshly for not only being complacent about it, but actually because they were boasting in it. They were boasting of their level of tolerance. Look how tolerant we are. Look, look what we allow to go on. We They raised this up on a platform, on a pedestal. And now we get to chapter 6, and Paul moves on to lawsuits. <laughs> Apparently, People in the church are suing one another uh, over disputes and over matters uh, that should be worked through and worked out. And it could almost feel like Paul's just ranting or going down some kind of laundry list uh, of sin and isolated wrongs that he sees in this church. But chapters five and six are tied together. In fact, after our eight-verse passage, Paul goes back to sexual sin within the church and he returns to this topic, and what we're going to see is that the root of all of this causes these sin issues to be related. They're related at their heart. In our English translations, we have chapters, and we have verses, and we have sections and headings and, uh, that are all laid out there for the script, in the Scriptures for us, but those weren't originally in this letter when, when Paul wrote this letter to the, first, to the, the Corinthian church. They weren't present there. Uh, Chapters and verses and and headings were put in many years later, centuries later even, uh, for the purpose of navigation, of organization, of studying and memorization. And so that means originally when this letter was penned, there was no break here between topics. It was all one same concise thought. And as we consider this passage today, if you're like me, you may be asking, what in the world do lawsuits have to do with sexual sin within the church? Uh, what? How did you get there, Paul? How did Paul go from writing and scolding them about this blatant issue on that subject, dip into lawsuits, and then dip back into sexual sin within the church? And, and we're going to see that next week, but believe it or not, there is a connection. Uh, both of these issues deal with sinning directly against others within the body of Christ. For something to be sinful, uh, there has to be the context of a relationship. You, you think about this for a moment. There's the one who commits a sin and the one who is sinned against for sin to be present. and, and In terms of us and God, the Bible says that all of us, every single one of us, have done both things that God doesn't want us to do and haven't done things that God wants us to do. We have sinned against God. There's two parties here. There's us and there's God. There's the one committing sin and then there's the one who sinned against. And as you consider the church, it's similar. T- to sin against someone me- means either to love that person in an inappropriate way, to lift them up, to idolize them, to hold them in an unhealthy respect, or the opposite, to withhold the dignity the love that God calls us to extend to other people uh, is it's to, to make more, to make less of them. Either way, sinning against someone is, it, else is to act against someone in a way that's incongruent with the way God would have that person or that person's to be treated. The last two weeks, we've looked at how the Corinthian church's complacency with sin has led to an arrogance. It's led to boasting within the church and, and what they were tolerating within the church. That affects the church community and its relationships. It, it communicates indirectly that what God has said about sexual purity, what He has said about pleasure, about dignity even, of both people and the dignity of the gift of sex is, is, is not important. And we know God said that, but mm, we're gonna. It's, it's not that important. That's what it communicates indirectly through action. Today, we see the sin of unrighteous conflict within the body. And, and this has more of a visible impact. And you, you, see, you see this directly within relationships. Conflict, right? You see that some things can be hidden away, but some things are kind of in your face. And, and conflict with brothers and sisters, that, that's on full display, especially when it's gone to the point of reaching lawsuits. But both of those things damage the church community. Both instances bring division And both distract from the main purpose of the church, the gospel, being a a family, a faith family on mission together, living life to share the gospel, to make disciples, to see churches planted, to live life in, in that kind of lifestyle, in that kind of manner. You think about this. Both of the sinful practices within these chapters are ultimately tied to pride, to idolatry of self, and pursuing my needs, my comfort, my preferences over everyone else. I'm far more important than everyone else, is what both of these sins communicate. Uh, And let's let's dive into our passage to see what I mean. Uh, Before we go any further, though, I want to stipulate one thing. Uh, I want to stipulate from the beginning that what we're going to be talking about as we consider lawsuits are civil lawsuits. We're not talking about criminal lawsuits uh, this is, that's a totally different subject. We, we At no point are we suggesting, or is Paul suggesting, that the church should ignore criminal activity. Uh, Paul says later to the Romans he, to, to esteem, to, to submit to governing authorities, to, to respect that. And that's what, we, that's what we're talking about. We, and I, I'm convinced Paul's talking about civil issues because as we're going to see in, in verse 8... Uh, and this is going to be up on the screen as well. In verse 8, he makes it clear. In the CSB, it says, Instead, you yourselves do wrong and you cheat. You do this to brothers and sisters. The ESV says, You yourselves wrong and defraud. So he's, he's talking about issues that are not crimes, but s- civil issues and, and offense. And so as we discuss the uh, disagreements, that could lead to, that could lead to lawsuits. Let's be clear on exactly what we're talking about and make no assumptions. The relational dynamic was extremely messed up within this church, and we're going to see, we've seen this. Um, Since that's our stipulation, let's go back and work through our passage uh, under that. So starting in verse 1, Paul writes, "...if any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases?" In chapter 1 uh, of 1 Corinthians, we saw how divisions were already present within the church. Um, they were, the church was segmented into people, into cliques almost, of following and, and being devoted to celebrity leaders of the day, different apostles or different church leaders. Uh, Paul says, some of you are saying, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And this group says, well, I follow Peter or Cephas. And then another group says, well, I follow Jesus. And you already had this rivalry within the church Paul spent several chapters unpacking all of that's related to that and behind that and the sin that's tied to that and the dangers of the lack of unity that that kind of behavior brings. This passage today continues to highlight that there were some really deep divisions within this church and the extent of the damage that division brings. Paul says, how dare you? That's the the words he used. I mean, it's pretty strong language. I can imagine... uh, Saying that to someone and someone not being kind of taken aback by that, you know, uh, I, I don't just go to my wife and say, "How dare you?" and use those words, and, uh, and it not be a very serious thing. In fact, I don't usually ever use those words in my wife. but the fact that he uses these words <coughs> elevates the seriousness of the issue. That's not just a phrase you use anytime. <laughs> but he says, "How dare you? How dare you take your brothers and sisters to court?" How dare you take your disputes outside the church to those who have no context for what life in Christ should be about, i.e., secular Roman judges of Paul's day. Paul makes reference to the coming day that's promised in several chapters throughout Scripture, several places throughout Old Testament and New Testament, where the church will be given privilege in the final day of sitting with Christ at the final judgment of the world, And we don't know how all that's going to look, but we know that we're given several glimpses throughout the Scripture where we as the body of Christ, Christ is doing the judging, but we're right there present with Him as He judges the world and even judges those angels that were fallen, that that followed Satan to try to usurp God's authority, but were banished from heaven. And you see that in several places. And just put these on the screen. We're not going to read through these, but if you wanted to make note of that and go back to that later, you see that in Daniel 7 and Matthew 19, Luke 22... Second Peter 2, and ultimately in Revelation 3 and, 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 in verse, and in chapter 20 as well. The CSB Study Bible says this about verse 2 in our passage, in light of the church's role in these coming ultimate judgments, the church is certainly qualified to judge trivial cases that concern matters of life. We are, not, not individually, but we, the Spirit of God has equipped us as a family of God, as the people of God, to work together in love and harmony to work through the disputes that we have within the church. Uh, in, In no way should we ever get to the point of we're taking things to the courts outside of the church. In love, we should be able to work through those things. If we rely on the Spirit's leadership while cultivating a heart of humility, the church is more than capable of resolving civil disputes. God has equipped us to facilitate conversations of reconciliation. That's that's all through the scripture. Paul writes that, that that even that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're about. Uh, The gospel is about reconciliation, about man being reconciled back to God, of, of brother again being reconciled to brother. Therefore, my question for us as we look at this today, what didn't happen in these situations that led them going to court? It seems to me that this is as much about lawsuits as it is about conflict within the church. How we handle conflict with brothers and sisters is a serious issue. This church family, they should have dealt with these issues long before it ever got to the point of going to court, Uh, long before solicitors and lawyers were brought in. Were they so unwilling to engage in healthy biblical conflict within their church family? But I wonder the same question about us. Are we willing to be bold enough to have those conversations? But we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, the reality of lawsuits against brothers and sisters is a sign of deeply, deeply unhealthy relationships and deep, unhealthy communication within the church. It's a sign of unwillingness to confess sin, uh, a sign of unwillingness to, to confess offense and, and bitterness, with a brother and sister, part of being connected to the church is being committed enough to love one another enough to actually talk to each other when it's hard. You don't you don't just choose when things are going well, choose to associate with one another. That's not what being a part of the church, this, we're not just a social club where it's fun to be together and we only do fun things. We, all of life is tied together. We live life together. Part of being the body of Christ is is being committed enough to love each other sacrificially. So even when it's not comfortable for me to have conversations, I'm still going to love you enough to have the conversation I need to have. Even when it's not comfortable for me to listen to someone who needs to have a hard conversation with me, I'm still going to love you and respect you enough to to listen and hear you out and hear what you have to say. How you and I relate to one another within the body of Christ directly, directly impacts our witness to the neighborhood around us the world around us. Those aren't separate issues. Our effectiveness to engage our neighborhood is is affected by our relationship with one another. There's a reason Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know you're my disciple by your love for one another. It's by your love that they'll know. Not loving one another does the opposite of sharing the news of the gospel. It hinders the witness of the church i can't think of a much more unloving thing within a church for there to be division and disunity to the point that there are lawsuits amongst people within the same church so what's the answer the pragmatist in me always wants to know this so what's the answer to the problem then Uh, how do we respond when we find ourselves in this situation well jesus was very clear He, he spoke very directly and very clearly As he looked forward to churches and the existence of Christian churches across the world, he says this in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a blueprint for how to deal with someone who has sinned against you. Jesus' end goal for his followers carrying out this process is reconciliation. That's the goal here. Uh, In the same way, the Apostle Paul writes several times throughout the New Testament of ways to cultivate a culture of sacrificial love within the body of Christ, to avoid ever getting close to these kind of situations. And and these are kind of going to be on the screen one after another. Uh, These are just a few places, but it kind of gives us a picture. In Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He writes in Ephesians 4, later in the same chapter, verses 31 and 32, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ in Philippians 2, 3 and 4 he says do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit but in humility in humility consider others as more important than yourselves wow that's that's other level humility there verse 4 everyone should look out not only for his own interests but also the interests of others and then finally, uh, Colossians 3, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on, like a garment, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And there are, there are a whole lot of other places we could, go. we could spend the rest of our time today just looking at verse after verse, passage after passage, that deal with that issue within the church, this kind of thinking, this kind of instruction, saturates the writings of the apostles throughout the whole, which tells me that this wasn't, uh, things weren't as idealistic as we like to paint them a lot of times in our minds, as we read through Acts, as we read through the letters. This was an issue for the church, because people then were just like people today, uh, we all have relationships, and anytime you have a relationship, conflict is inevitable. So working through conflict was just as normal in early church days as it is today. Uh, making the choice to love your brother and your sister was just as at the forefront of things as it, then as it is today. When we love one another the way we're supposed to, we treat one another the way Christ intended. When there's healthy communication, humility, mutual striving to love one another— there is gospel action of the mission. And what I mean by that, it's in the context of loving one another sacrificially, truly caring for the welfare of each other, that we will see people drawn to faith in Christ. We'll see disciples being made. We'll see churches being planted. We've been thinking about the Corinthian church, but, but let's make it a little bit more personal this morning. Let's think about Denniston Baptist Church today. Um, let's turn the spotlight away from the faceless people that we don't know that it's easily, easy to cast judgment on, and, and let's actually think about the faces in this room on Sundays and Tuesdays and in our missional communities. Uh, over the last couple of years, we have seen church unity in a way present in this church that, that I've rarely witnessed. I, I deeply believe, and I was telling Mark and Paul this this week, I deeply believe that right now, we are in prime position for the enemy to just try to set traps of discord uh, of bitterness and conflict. I say that, not, not aware of any issues of that going on, but the level of unity that we're seeing, the level of gospel witness going forth, just puts us in a prime position for the enemy to try to sow those things within our community. We must be vigilant to actively build up one another. Outwardly, as well as inwardly within our hearts. But let's be totally honest this morning. Um, Even when this is happening, conflict is inevitable. Even with the best of intentions, as well as always giving people the benefit of the doubt, conflict is inevitable because every single one of us is fallen, is sinful, is striving to be more like Christ, but we're not there yet. In those moments, though, We have to be faithful not to respond in an unhealthy way. Uh, I found that the way unhealthy conflict is experienced is through people either avoiding it altogether, which we like to do, or the exact opposite, treating it it like they're going to battle. And their words are their instruments of battle to the death. We don't always engage in healthy conflict That's why we have to work hard to make sure we're engaging it in a a biblical way. So I, I want to speak to kind of two different situations here. First, if you've been wronged, if you're in a place of feeling wronged, before you take action or speak to anybody else about the situation or about the issue, I want to urge you just to take a moment to steady your heart. First, reconcile in your heart that you will not let that issue cloud your perception of the whole entire church. Uh... When we feel wronged, it's easy. Man, it is so easy for me to jump into black and white mode where everything is either black or it's white. It's either good, it's all good, it's all bad, the whole thing, you know. I want to caution us against that. Take a moment to remember that you are loved by this church. Man, we love you. You're an integral part of our church family. Secondly, work hard, and this is hard work, Work hard in that moment to remind your heart of the bigger picture of Christ and His glory. Nothing in this life, no injustice, no suffering, no sorrow, no wrong can ever take away from the glory of Christ. Jesus is bigger than any single issue in your life. Don't let pain and hurt trip you up and trip your walk up. And thirdly, before you take any action, seek the Lord about this. Go to Him in prayer. Commit this to Him in prayer. Spend time praying and giving it, actually, to the Lord and trusting it to Him. Extend forgiveness, even ahead of the time. Extend forgiveness to the person in your heart who has wronged you. Then, after you've settled in your heart, spent time with the Lord, let's consider what Jesus said. What did He say? He said, go to your brother. Um, note, if you remember back in, in Matthew 18, He didn't say, go and talk about, to all your friends about the issue. And go and talk to several different people in different camps and get advice so that everybody knows about the issue before the one person does, and then go to that person. He doesn't even say, go and have like 50 people praying about, praying in quotes, about the situation ahead of time. And then go, he says, go humbly, without telling anyone, just go have a conversation with that person. Uh, In humility, in love. We have to love God enough and love one another enough to approach one another and communicate ways we have felt wronged by others. In love, Gently, but directly—not vaguely—directly explaining what has happened. Then we give them grace and allow them to respond. Uh, I strongly suggest starting off that conversation by saying something. Listen, I need to talk to you about something, and I'm just going to tell you this might be a little uncomfortable. um, But I love you. I love the Lord, and I love I love you and the Lord enough to have this conversation. So can we pray first before we have this conversation and offer to have prayer? Think about this. How much better would our, our issues of conflict go uh, with someone? If you have spent time with the Lord searching your heart, you've, you've spent time giving the issue to the Lord, and then you go in humility and love to that person. Uh, the love and joy and reconciliation that comes from a conversation like that, man, that creates bonds that are so deep within the body of Christ. Uh that's, that's amazing stuff. So that's if you're wrong. In the same way, let's, let's turn the page a little bit. If, if someone comes to you and they communicate to you that they have felt wronged by you, don't put defenses up. Actually, take a second and listen. Don't dismiss them. Don't write them off. Don't blow them off. Listen to your brother or sister who approaches you, recognizing the courage it takes to have that kind of conversation because it is hard confessing sin where it's necessary. Listen, don't try to do that thing that we're all tempted to do in these moments, that you're kind of listening, but you're really listening to think about what you're going to say in response to defend yourself. Actually listen to what's being said. Recognizing, man, this person loves me enough to have this conversation. Trying to understand not just the words on the face value of being said, what is the sentiment as well behind the words? Man, they are hurt. You're doing that will communicate that you actually love that person. Once they've said what they needed to say, acknowledge any ways you've hurt them or sinned against them, but ask follow-up questions just to bring clarity. Be willing to ask for forgiveness. But at the same time, it may be that after the conversation, you feel like you're 100% blameless in the situation. I would say extend grace to that person. Express love to that brother and sister acknowledge that they're hurt explain things from your point of view not from the sake of vindication but of reconciliation in order to bring clarity again let the goal of the conversation not to be to prove your innocence but to reconcile with that person either way whether it's real or perceived this person has been hurt so acknowledge that talk through that pray with them about it and then as you finish the conversation to commit to care for and pray for one another moving forward Sometimes these conversations don't go as well as we would hope and as well as that was ideal in that picture. And that's the reason Jesus lays out a couple of other steps for us. Um, Sometimes it doesn't end in reconciliation after the first conversation. So I would say bring in someone else, just like Jesus says, then go or bring one or two people with you for the purpose of reconciliation. Someone that you trust, someone that they trust. And this is exactly what Jesus lays out for us. By the way, it's most helpful when this third person is, is someone that is impartial and someone that you both trust. Um, don't get someone that you know is on your side <laughs> to go and be the mediator. Uh, get someone who's outside this, the situation. This is what Paul is getting at in verses four and five of our passage. He says, so if you have such matters, do you appoint as judge or judges those who have no standing within the church? I say this to, you, to your shame. Can it be that there's not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers. Trust the larger community of the church around you. Trust us enough to bring someone in to help facilitate the conversation. Man, this will be a bridge in communication. You want clear communication? Having a third person there is so helpful. Having someone else provides another set of eyes and ears to that, that mediator can decipher the truth of, of what's being said, the sentiment that's being communicated, when the temptation to let feelings cloud judgment is present within one or both parties. In Matthew 18, when talking about sin, that's what Jesus is. He's not talking about just being offended. He's talking about sin. Uh, Jesus says, first go to that person, then take someone with you. And then if they're still unrepentant, bring them before the church. At that point, is the responsibility of the elders of the church, to lead the church in dealing with sinful behavior. But let's just say that you're wronged by someone. You've gone through all this. you spent time reconciling in your heart, gauging your own heart. You've spent time in prayer. You've gone to that person. You've had to bring in someone else to mediate. Things still just aren't good. It's just, it just seems like things are broken. They won't acknowledge they've hurt you, wronged you. There's no uh, love in the situation. What do you do? As hard as it is, you entrust that situation to the Lord. (laughs) After all, He knows it. He knows about it. He's seen it all. He is the ultimate judge So allow Him to deal with the person. Paul writes this in our passage in verse 7 when scolding people who didn't respond well and they tried to take matters in their own hand, he says, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. It's a witness killer. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Part of being a follower of Jesus is that we will be misunderstood. That's a given. We're gonna be misunderstood we will not always be given the benefit of the doubt in this world. Trust me, I know from personal experience, you know this from personal experience, it is painful and it is confusing when that kind of thing happens. When people misunderstand you and they assume the worst about you and they don't give you the benefit of the doubt, that is not fun. That is that is painful. The, the temptation is that could, for that to stay with you for a long period of time and you need to go back and run that scenario. But dwelling in and cultivating that desire to get vindication to get justice to let the truth be known man that makes the situation about you and not about Christ at that point I I found personally that it was actually more about me finding my identity in being the victor of the situation you know that that scenario that temptation to run it back through where the truth comes out and I'm lifted to victory and everyone's rejoicing that truth has won the day or, or whatever or that person is punished somehow or whatever but that's not Christ-exalting, is it? That's, that's more about me wanting the favor of the world and the perception of being liked by the world and the people around me than trusting in my identity in Christ. Is it not enough to know that the Lord sees you and sees that you've been wronged and knows that He loves you? Our responsibility is to do our best at demonstrating love to one another that's because the church is a family. Man, faith in Jesus brings it with it adoption into God's family. We know that. We've talked about that. Every family, every single family uh, knows this. I don't have, you already know what I'm going to say. Every single family goes through conflict. Everyone, even the one that has the label of being perfect, perfect family. Conflict, though, isn't bad in and of itself. It's how we respond to conflict that is bad or good. <laughs> it's how you and I handle it. As brothers and sisters in one family, we have to be diligent to love one another sacrificially. Put one another first. And if we do this, we will see, and we see conflicts that arise, we solve them quickly and we, and we, we solve them redemptively. A watching world will marvel at that. That'll be attractive to people. The gospel will be on display. The healing power of God is attractive to others. Several years ago, um, in my Nadina's hometown, back in America, A local church split because of division in the church and there had apparently been conflict behind the scenes, strong disagreement for for a period of time, and it all erupted actually on a Sunday morning in their worship gathering in the middle of their service. Uh, What started out as a regular Sunday time of worship with singing, with celebration, was halted in the middle and quickly just imploded into name-calling, shouting, blame-casting. I wasn't there to witness it, but I know many people who were, and every single one of them, described the scene as painful, horrific, gut-wrenching. One group ended up leaving the church and starting their own congregation, and so they had two in this small town, and they'd already had a few other churches, yet another church pops up, and um, after a couple of years, there began to be conversations between these. A couple of years, be conversations between these two groups, and then there was commitment to pray for one another, and then they said, you know, it'd be really good if we just started having every once in a while joint gatherings together. And so they started having joint services together, and after a period of time, these congregations merged back into one, and they uh, they changed their name. They changed the name of the church from what it was to Restoration Church signifying all that God had done in, in their in their church family. We celebrate that God can do that. He can take the most broken of relationships and the most broken of situations, and He can bring healing where there's fracture, where there's brokenness. He does that in our relationships. But I just wonder, what if things have been different, though? Even though I know many of them, I don't pretend to know their hearts and their minds in the situation. I don't know, I don't pretend to know what they're feeling in that church years ago that led to this trauma on that Sunday morning, but I can't help but wonder what would have happened if love and reconciliation had been at the forefront of the conversation amongst everyone involved. Don't let something gnaw at you internally. Don't let something sit there and fester and turn in from offense and hurt to animosity to bitterness. As we close this, I just want to finish our time with just a couple of questions. Are you harboring feelings of bitterness this morning against a brother or a sister? I once heard someone say that bitterness is like poison. We take it and we expect someone else to die. When really, it's just hurting us and it's killing us. It's sucking the life out of us. All the while, we're just waiting on that person to suffer. If there's something you're holding on to... Don't wait to reconcile. It will only cause harm to you. Settle that today. And by the way, if you're wondering, do I have something? This is how you know. If you're continually running scenarios in your heart, in your mind, with you and someone else within the church, it's a pretty strong indication that there's something that needs to be addressed. If it's been weeks, months, years, this is going on, man... Settle that. Address that. Go to your brother or your sister and make that right. Secondly, ha- have you been convicted about wrongdoing, whether it's intentional or not, that you've, you've, wrong, you've committed against a brother or a sister? This is what Jesus says about this in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, so if you're offering your gift on the altar and there's, there you remember as, as you're, you're worshiping, you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. Not that you have something against them. They have something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and your sister. Then come and offer your gift. Whether or not that person even remembers this uh, or was aware of it, you need to go and ask forgiveness and make it right. Being proactive in these things will help our church grow to a place, man, that is so healthy, that is so unified. A culture of being quick to forgive and quick to apologize is a powerful thing. The outworking of that will inevitably be continued gospel growth, seeing people come to faith, seeing disciples made, seeing churches planted. So this morning, we just want to give you some space to think about that, to ponder that. Maybe you want prayer for that, but maybe you just sense the Spirit nudging you in your heart that you need to go to somebody today. I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you just need to go and, and pray with someone and say, "Look, I, I just need to talk to you. We need to have this conversation. I love you. I want to get things right." And as we respond, we're going to have a time of singing. We're going to have a time of of praying. Um, Mark's going to be outside the doors there if you want to pray with him. Um, but we're also going to partake in in the table and. This is something, as we look at the the Bible, this is something exclusively for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus, Um, those who had committed their life to Jesus. and, And if that's you today, we invite you to partake in this. But we do that today, remembering that because Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. That breaking of his body paved the way for us to have reconciliation, not just with God, but with one another. At the end of the meal, he raised the cup and said, this is the new covenant, the new one in my blood. Because of that, we can now have reconciliation. We can see forgiveness of sin. So I want to invite you today to come and to break the bread, to dip it into the cup, and to remember that there has now been purchased for you restored relationship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness thank you that even in difficult situations and conversations, you give us grace. You give us the, uh, the ability. You equip us and enable us to love in a way that we can't love in and of ourselves. And so today, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area, help us to be bold enough and courageous enough to step into the places we need to step to, to have the conversations we need to have. I pray that you would not let this get away from us, that we would not be able to cast this to the side. that we would be faithful to follow through in this and that as a result, your name would be magnified and glorified. As a result, we would see people all around us coming to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.